Thank you. Return with me this morning to Matthew chapter 13. And uh, I am continuing a series uh, of sermons I'm doing through the summer on the parables of Jesus. And we're going to be looking at uh, Matthew chapter 13 today, the parable of the wheat and the tares. And uh, it's going to be a kind of a split passage. We'll be, be reading verses 24 through 30, and then we'll drop down and read 36 through 40. So let us uh, give careful hearing to the reading of this portion of God's word. Jesus presented another parable to them, saying, The kingdom of heaven may be compared to a man who sowed good seed in his field. But while his men were sleeping, his enemy came and sowed tares among the wheat and went away. But when the wheat sprouted and bore grain, then the tares became evident also. The slaves of the landowner came and said to him, Sir, did you not sow good seed in your field? How then does it have tares? And he said to them, An enemy has done this. And the slaves said to him, Do you want us then to go and gather them up? But he said, No, for while you are gathering up the tares, you may uproot the wheat with them. Allow both to grow together until the harvest. And in the time of the harvest, I will say to the reapers, First gather up the tares and bind them in bundles to burn them up. But gather the wheat into my barn. Then down to verse 36. Then he left the crowds and went into the house. And his disciples came to him and said, Explain to us the parable of the tares of the field. And he said, The one who sows the good seed is the Son of Man. And the field is the world. As for the good seed, these are the sons of the kingdom. And the tares are the sons of the evil one. And the enemy who sowed them is the devil. And the harvest is the end of the age. And the reapers are angels. Just as the tares are gathered up and burned with fire, so it shall be at the end of the age. The Son of Man will send forth his angels, and they will gather out of his kingdom all stumbling blocks, and those who commit lawlessness will throw them into the furnace of fire, and in that place there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. And then the righteous will shine forth as the sun in the kingdom of their Father. He who has ears to hear, let him hear. And again, that is the word of God. Let's pray. Father, we thank you again for another opportunity uh, to study your word together. And I pray your blessing upon us as we do, that we would understand it aright. We know that we need your help uh, to do that. We need the Holy Spirit to illumine us and to guide us, to direct us. And I pray he would do that. He would be our teacher uh, this morning. And that you would guide and direct me as I seek to... Uh, bring this portion of your word to your people. And I pray that your Holy Spirit would speak to all of our hearts through it. And you would apply it to whatever our need might be this morning. We ask it all in the name of Jesus. Amen. Well, we're back in uh, Matthew chapter 13 this morning. I say back in Matthew Matthew 13 because that's where we began this series of sermons on the parables. I began... Uh, with Matthew 13, the first portion of it, looking at the parable of the sower and the soils. And of course, uh, this parable this morning of the 
uh, wheat and the tares being an agricultural parable is similar uh, to that first one. There are actually seven parables in Matthew chapter 13. And the similarity between them is that they are all what we call kingdom parables. They tell us something about the kingdom of God. Jesus introduces each one of them by saying, the kingdom of God is like this, or the kingdom of God may be compared to. And so each one of these seven parables in Matthew chapter 13 tell us something about the kingdom of heaven or the kingdom of God. Now, understanding the nature of the kingdom, I believe, is essential to understanding the ministry of Jesus and the unfolding of the message of the New Testament. Jesus came to earth, bringing with him the powers of the kingdom of heaven. That's one of the reasons people were so amazed by Jesus, is because of all these things he could do. And he was demonstrating the powers of the kingdom of God as he came and ministered on this earth. As the Son of God, Jesus came to establish the kingdom of God. Now, I have a book in my library that is written by a man named George Eldon Ladd, and it's entitled A Theology of the New Testament. It's one of those books in my library that is worn and tattered and marked thoroughly because I've referred to it so often. In that book, uh, Dr. Ladd makes the point that there is a great similarity between the ministry of Jesus and the establishment of the kingdom. There's a sense in which the gospel, the ministry of the gospel is the ministry of the kingdom. The New Testament tells us how the kingdom comes, how the kingdom grows, and how those who are in the kingdom are to live. That is, it gives us the nature of the kingdom. It also gives us kingdom rules. You know, when we studied the, the Sermon on the Mount, remember? I said, these, Jesus is giving us here kingdom rules for kingdom living. And a big part of what the New Testament is about is, is, is explaining to us how it is those of us who are in the kingdom whose hearts have been changed, who've been rescued from darkness into light. How we're to live is now the people of God and the kingdom of God. Carrie's teaching through Ephesians in Sunday school. and He's now into chapter 4 and chapters 4 through 6. Talk about that. How do we live as people who are members of the kingdom of God? And that's what these kingdom parables describe. They help us understand uh, the establishing of the kingdom, the expansion of the kingdom, the growth of the kingdom, and also, as we'll see this morning, the opposition there is to the kingdom. A key part of understanding the role of the believer in the world and a key part of understanding the ministry of the church is to understand the presence of the kingdom. The ministry of the church, in a very real sense, is kingdom ministry as we seek to build and expand the kingdom of God, that is, to see more and more the reign and rule of God in the hearts and lives of his people in this world. And so with that background, let's look at this kingdom parable of the wheat and the tares. A similar pattern to what we've done as we looked at each one of the parables. We're going to begin first this morning by looking at the context. I've already kind of set the context by placing 
this parable in the context of the rest of the kingdom parables here in Matthew 13. Jesus told this parable, again, at the height of his popularity. You know, Jesus' ministry went through different phases. It began, and then as people began to be excited about the prospect that this might be the long-awaited Messiah, as they saw him performing all these Miracles as they heard him teaching with authority and not as the scribes and Pharisees. Well, people just flocked to hear Jesus until he really got to the heart of the message, which was discipleship. Leaving the other loves in your life and following him. And he began to teach that way. The crowds began to fall away. So that when, you know, you come to the end of Jesus' life and he's about to be crucified, it's him and the disciples again. But here Jesus is at the height of his popularity and he's obviously staying somewhere uh, near the sea. If you look back at verse, uh, or chapter 13, verse 1, it says, That day Jesus went out from the house, that's where he was staying, and was sitting by the sea. He went there to teach, but there were so many people who came to hear him that eventually he got into a boat uh, and he really taught, sat down in the boat and taught uh, from there. It was from there he taught these parables of the kingdom. Now, as we saw in an earlier sermon, Jesus told the parables to the multitudes. Uh, but most often he explained the parables in private uh, to the disciples. The, the, the parables themselves, for the most part, were public. The explanation was in private. It's because, again, the, the parables were designed to uh, hide the truth from unbelievers and to reveal it uh, to believers. And that's why we'll see in just a little bit that uh, after Jesus went back into the house, his disciples asked him, okay, tell us what that parable means. And Jesus told them the meaning in private. So that's the, the, that's the context. He's teaching by the Sea of Galilee this large crowd of people. Second, uh, we need to look at the, the story of the parable itself. And again, just like all the parables, the story is quite simple. It's a story of a farmer who sowed his field in wheat. And he had done everything that he knew he needed to do to have a good crop. However, one night shortly after he had sown his seed, his enemy, as is described in the text, his enemy came and he sowed tares among the wheat. Now, that happened while his workers were sleeping. Uh, now, you shouldn't think that uh, somehow the workers were derelict or irresponsible. Uh, Jesus didn't say that here. He just says they were sleeping. It was at night. Uh, they knew of no reason to guard or to watch the field. And while they were sleeping, after they'd finished their work, soon after, the enemy came and sowed tares in his field. Now, the tear that Jesus mentioned here in the Greek is a darnel weed. It's a plant that looks very much like a, a plant of wheat. In fact, you really cannot tell the difference between the two plants until they begin to put on heads of grain. That's the only time you can tell that one is different from the other. And that's reflected in verse uh, 26 where Jesus says, But when the wheat sprouted and bore grain, then the tares became evident also. But when the workers realized the problem, when they realized that they had the situation where tares were growing in the wheat, they went to the farmer and said, didn't you give us good seed? 
Why are there tares in the field? And, and the farmer knew immediately what the problem was. And that, he said, an enemy has done this. And he knew that an enemy had come and sowed tares in his field. And so then the workers ask him another interesting question in uh, verse 28. And said, do you want us to, then to go and to gather them up? That is, he, they were asking the farmer, do you want us to go through the field and, and pull up all the, the tares so that the wheat will be left? And the farmer said to them in verse 29, no, for while you're gathering up the tares, you may uproot the wheat with them. Then he went on to say in verse 30, allow both to grow together until the harvest. In the time of harvest, I will say to the reapers, first bundle up the tares and bind them in bundles and bring them up. But gather the wheat into my barn. So that's the story. Very simple. Farmer sows his field. Amy comes and sows tares. And the wheat and tares grow together and the workers say, we've got a problem. They've got tares among the wheat. Do you want us to go and pull up the, the tares to remove them? And the farmer says, no. Because you might damage the wheat in the process. Let them both grow together until the harvest. Then third, we need to look at the meaning of the parable. Now again, each of the parables has its own particular meaning. Uh, again, as we've seen, the definition of the parable, it's an earthly story with a heavenly meaning. Well, what is the heavenly meaning? What spiritual meaning does Jesus give to us in this parable? Uh, that's what the disciples want to know also. If you go down to verse 36, we're told uh, when he left the crowds and went into the house. Remember verse 1, he went out of the house, went down by the sea to teach. Now he goes back into the house. He and his disciples were told, and the disciples came to him and said, Explain to us the parable of the tares of the field. Uh, Jesus gave the parable in public, and now he gives the explanation in private. And uh, Jesus is very detailed in his explanation of the meaning here. In fact, I'm not sure there's another parable where Jesus kind of goes item by item and says, this is what this part of this parable means. But look with me, beginning at verse 37. The one who sows the good seed, he says the son of man. That is the farmer, the one who had the seed sown, is the son of man. The field in the parable, he says, is the world. The good seed, verse 38, uh, he said, these are the sons of the kingdom. The tares... They're the sons of the evil one. The enemy uh, is the one who, and the one who sowed the, the tares in the field is the devil. The harvest, he says, is the end of the age, and the reapers are the angels. Doesn't get more specific than that. Jesus takes every element of this parable and said this relates to that. But what is the interpretation? What is the meaning of this parable? Again, it is a picture of the kingdom. The kingdom of God may be compared to, Jesus says. A farmer who went out, sowed his field, an enemy came and sowed the tares in it. It's interesting Jesus would use agricultural uh, analogies to describe the kingdom of God. Remember the first parable, the pair of the sower and the soils. 
was the story of a man who sowed seed in his field and you know the seed went on different kinds of soil and the the fruit of the seed what the seed produced depended upon the kind of soil on which it fell four kinds of soil the hard beaten down path along the side of the road where the seed just sat there and the birds came and got it the very shallow soil that covered uh, you know there's a thin layer of soil on the rock where the the seed sprouted up quickly, the sun came down, and they wilted and didn't last. The, the seed in the thorny soil where uh, the plants grow, but there were so many weeds and thorns that they never were able to produce anything. And then finally there were some who fell on good seed, good soil, and produced a bountiful harvest, bountiful crop. Well, this parable of the wheat and the tares is about the good soil. The seed here has fallen on the good soil. But along with the seed, an enemy has come and sown the tares among it. Now, in the parable, uh, Jesus says that the one who sows the seed, the good seed, is the son of man. Jesus, through his disciples, was sowing the seed of the gospel. And the disciples needed to understand something. And that is, as they sowed the seed of the gospel, the good news of the gospel of Jesus Christ that there was an enemy coming along behind him sowing other seed, bad seed. They, they wouldn't produce the kind of fruit they were looking for, but would produce something far different. That's what, that's what we are, isn't it? We're the followers of Christ. We're the disciples of Jesus. He, he gives to us the same command that he gives to his disciples then. And that we're to be seed sowers. That's what we're about, folks. We're seed sowers. We're to be in the business of sowing the seed of the gospel. It's part of what we do every Lord's Day morning here. We, we sow the seed of the gospel. So what we do before worship in these various rooms around our church facility. In Sunday school, we sow the seed. You Sunday school teachers are sowing the seed every Lord's Day morning. That's what we do in a concentrated fashion uh, once a week in Bible school. It's what Gavin does every week to different groups. He sows the seed of the gospel. And we're looking for God to take that seed and to cause it to take root and to grow and to bear fruit. And we long for the day when we see the fruit of the seed of the gospel that's sown among us. But we need, what we need to understand is that at the same time there's a very real enemy who doesn't want the, the seed of the gospel to grow. Who doesn't want the seed of the gospel to bear fruit. And so in the midst of the good seed that is sown by the Son of Man and His disciples, He sows the tares. And the tares grow along with the wheat. What is the field? Jesus says, the field is the world. And I want us to think about that for just a moment because there are some who have so focused on that one phrase in the passage where it says the field is the world. They've said that it has no real application to the church. And make a distinction between the seed sown in the world and, and the life and function of the church. But don't you remember, this is a kingdom parable. 
Jesus is talking about how the kingdom comes and how the kingdom grows. Where is the kingdom growing? Where does the kingdom spread if it's not in the world? Jesus came into the world, the Bible says, to save sinners. He calls his people out of the world, tells them not to be conformed to the world, tells his people you are to be in the world but not of the world. You see, the world is the context in which we carry out our kingdom business. The kingdom of God is to be a light that shines in the darkness of the world. The kingdom of God is to attract people out of the kingdom of the world. A very important part of the ministry of the kingdom is the ministry of the church. And so I don't believe you can make such a harsh distinction here between the world and the church, but we must see how God, through his Son and the Holy Spirit, works building his kingdom in the world through the ministry and work of the church itself. So what you have here is a picture of how the gospel grows in the field in which the gospel is sown. All the while we're sowing good seed, the evil one is coming along behind and sowing tares. We spent a good bit of time this year on Sunday evenings studying spiritual warfare. And the whole basis of the concept of spiritual warfare is there's a spiritual enemy. There is, there is, as Jesus says, the devil who is doing his best to hinder the work of the gospel. And we dare not forget the reality of the enemy. And he is trying to undo everything that we try to do here. That's why we need to pray earnestly that God would give us success that the gospel would be powerful. They would overcome the enemy of our souls as we seek to spread the good news of the gospel. And all the while we're sowing the seed, the good seed of the gospel, there are all these tares that grow up. Now the tares generally come from false teaching. The belief, for example, that you can somehow earn your salvation. Salvation really isn't all by grace, but you can do something to earn God's favor. The idea that salvation really has to do more with knowledge than with the heart. It's not so much what you believe in what you know, that you can almost believe your way into the kingdom. The belief that somehow obedience really isn't important. That Adherence to the law of God is not a very significant thing. There are all these kind of tears that pop up. And of course, there are tears in the world, and there are tears in the church. We try our best to make sure that those who join the church are sincere believers in Jesus Christ. We require a profession of faith. Someone to say, I have given my life to Jesus. I trust in him. I want to live for him. We require a profession of faith. It's really the only requirement. But we require a profession of faith. But you know as well as I know that there are some people who think they have faith, who can give testimony to some kind of faith. But over time, it proves that's not the case. Some people make a profession of faith and they really don't have one. 
who will join the church under false pretense, saying they believe when, in fact, they may know in reality they don't. Some sort of family pressure, peer pressure, age pressure, whatever it might be. And so what you find is the church, much like Jesus describes in this parable, there's a field, and there's good seed sown, and boy, there are, there's, the, there's the good wheat that's grown from the good seed. But, but in the midst of the, of the, the wheat, there are these tares. And the question is, what do you do about the tares? That's what the disciples ask. What do you want us to do? You want us to go through and pull up all the tares? Seemed like a good idea to them, didn't it? You could tell. That, this is, ought to be a good. Let's go get them. Let's, let's rip those tares up. But Jesus said, "Not so fast." Because in tearing up the the tear, pulling up the tear, you're liable to damage the wheat. Now, let's be real practical and honest here. Churches face. A difficult question sometimes. What do we do about people in the church? They're becoming like tares. How do you handle that? We've all heard stories, I'm sure, of uh, ministers, usually as young ministers who are uh, zealous and well-intentioned. You go into churches and their, their intent is to make the church pure. And so they go in there and they start they start pulling up tares. Well, the problem is when you pull up a tear, what happens? A lot of times you pull up a family, a whole family with it. Start going through pulling up the tares and you begin to uproot the whole unity of the church. On a very more practical level, you know what happens in that situation. You know who gets removed in that situation? It's not the tear. It's the, it's the, it's the preacher who tried to do all the pulling up of the tares. What did Jesus say? Jesus said, wait. Wait until the time of harvest. You know, I said we need to remember there's an enemy. Also, I need to remember there's going to be a time of harvest when God is going to take care of those kinds of things. Let the wheat and the tares grow together. At the time of the harvest, I'm going to say, let's get rid of the tares, let's bind them up, let's burn them, and let's put the wheat in the barn. Now, some of you are back there scratching your head saying, I thought there was something known as church discipline. And I thought that the elders had the responsibility of watching over the purity of the church. And that is absolutely right. We talked about Matthew chapter 18 last week, remember? Made reference to, and, and uh, Gary James taught about it in Sunday school. The whole matter of church discipline, how important that is. And it is important. Formal church discipline is an important part of what the church is about. But it appears that formal church discipline is reserved for those public, heinous sins that disrupt the life and the unity of the body of Christ. And I've been involved in more of that than I want to be over the last number of years. Not just on the local church level, but on the presbytery level. You know. I've shared some of that with you. We're in the process of that now. Our presbyter is appointed a prosecutor to bring a case against one of our ministers. 
I've been getting phone calls almost every day from that prosecutor as he formulates his case. It's an important matter because it affects the life and the ministry of the church. And there come times when you just have to, as the Bible says, take the immoral one out of your midst. That's what 1 Corinthians 5 tells us. The elders of the church are given a dual responsibility. They take a vow. A vow to promote two things. The purity and the peace of the church. Now, if you want to pray for your elders, you pray for them there. They would be given godly wisdom to know how to, to protect the purity of the church. Dealing with erring members. People who fall into sin. People who don't come regularly. People who don't come for a long time. And believe me, the elders deal with that every meeting. Praying for people. Talking about it. How do we deal with this? How do we minister to this person? How do we reclaim this person? What is our responsibility here? And at the same time, protect the peace of the church. Not to go through willy-nilly, uncaring, in a very cavalier fashion, destroying the unity of the church to protect its purity. The peace of the church to protect its purity. It's, it's a very, very delicate balance. Because you don't want to be so zealous for the church's purity that you destroy your peace. But at the same time, you don't want to be so concerned about the peace of the church, you neglect the responsibility to protect our purity. Do you see that issue? Pray for your elders that God would give them wisdom because the reality is, as Jesus says, folks, there are wheat and there are tares. And we need the wisdom in being able to discern and to deal with both to encourage the growth of the wheat and know how to deal with the tares always with the goal of bringing them rescuing them to Christ so they would know the reality of his love for them wheat and tares God help us to know how to encourage the growth of the wheat and deal in a godly way with the tares let's pray Father, thank you so much for your love for us and your great grace to us in Christ. And I pray that you give us all the wisdom as we deal with kingdom work, whether it be in our families, whether it be in our Sunday school class or our church, whether it be in our associations with people, to, to have the perspective that Jesus gives us here, the wheat and the tares, to understand that as we go forth with the gospel, sowing a seed, there's an enemy coming along behind us. And Father, we pray for wisdom, for grace. And we pray especially for the elders of this church as they uh, deal with uh, particular people and individuals and families that you give great grace and wisdom. That they might fulfill their vows to protect both the purity and the peace of the church as they deal with the wheat and the tares. We ask it all in Jesus' name. Amen.